There is a bit of explicit content in the podcast you are about to hear. It's Tuesday, January 16th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And here I think we have the clearest ever example of why we in media just need to speak plainly and accurately and not dance around words with euphemism or cower in deference to the perceived sensibilities of our audience. It is because any, any ambiguity in language or words will be seized upon and weaponized in the current political climate to wit shithole countries. Take shithole countries, please. Last week on CNN, Rich Lowry introduced what at the time seemed to me a largely irrelevant clarification on what the president might have been saying in that White House meeting. Well, first of all, I have a worldwide exclusive for you tonight, Aaron. My understanding on, on the basis of very good source, he didn't say S-hole, he said S-house. Actually, Donald Trump said neither. He didn't say S-house or S-hole. He said shithouse or maybe shithole. And I wish we could just say exactly what he said. Because the ambiguity allowed Georgia Senator David Perdue to go on ABC's This Week and assert this. Coming out of that meeting, we had a gross misrepresentation of what happened in that meeting. You say it was a gross misrepresentation. Senator Durbin has been very clear. Senator Graham has told others that the reports were basically accurate. Are you saying the president did not use the word that has been so widely reported? I'm telling you he did not use that word, George, and I'm telling you it's a gross misrepresentation. How many times do you want me to say that? Now, if we weren't all prigs and pantomime puritans, George Stephanopoulos would be able to ask the following question. Okay, okay, Senator, you're saying you didn't say shithole. Did you hear him say shithouse? Because this entire contratem, Republican, blasting Democrat, also Republican, contradicting their fellow Republicans for lying, and the media eagerly reporting that this is a two-sided argument, an unknowable utterance, it probably comes down to some people heard shithole, Dick Durbin says, Trump said shithole, versus some people say he said shithouse. One of the Republicans who is in camp shithouse, not shithole, but wasn't asked about it because just not polite, was Tom Cotton of Arkansas. Here he is on Face the Nation. I I didn't hear that word either. I certainly didn't hear what Senator Durbin has said repeatedly. So you're saying in that room you didn't hear any of this uh, sort of lumping everybody together. Is that what you're saying? I did not hear derogatory comments about, about, about individuals or persons. No. Right. He didn't say it about individuals or persons because if he said shit house, a house isn't an individual or a person. Fortunately, John Dickerson, because, you know, we got standards and practices and it's Sunday morning, couldn't just say, so wait, but did he say shithouse? A person can be built like a brick shithouse or crazy as a shithouse rat, but a person isn't a shithouse. Now, a person can be crazy as a shithouse rat or geniusly stable as a shithouse rat. There have been no longitudinal studies of the mental capacity of shithouse rats. Some scholars say the 25th Amendment is a remedy should any rodentia reveal themselves to be of the shithouse subspecies. There were further parsings from further Republicans on further Sunday shows. This was Rand Paul on Meet the Press. I'll tell you, there are two different standards here. In 2013, Lindsey Graham said the exact same thing the president did, but he used the word hellhole. Yeah, Lindsey Graham did say hellhole. Here he is saying it. The people coming across the southern border live in hellholes. They don't like that. They want to come here. But the point isn't that Lindsey Graham describes some countries as hellholes. The point is that the president describes some countries as shitholes 
or possibly shit houses. A shithole is very different from a hellhole. Perhaps someone could have explained this, except you're not allowed to say shit in polite company. I'll be that guy. People were upset that the president said shithole and not it was a shit show or shit ball or shit puppies because shithole has a specific meaning. Do you know what it means? It means toilet and so does shithouse. The president is saying that people come from countries that are toilets or that the entire continent of Africa is a toilet. A toilet is a horrible and largely inaccurate insult in a way calling a place that you live in a toilet is a horrible insult. It's also largely inaccurate in the way that a hellhole is not. War and pestilence and many of the horsemen of the apocalypse turn countries into hellholes for a time. Parts of Germany and Paris and Tokyo were hellholes after the war. You wouldn't describe Paris as a shithole or a shithouse. Shithouse, also literally a toilet. Shithole is meaner. It's more dismissive. It's a pretty bad indictment of the kind of person who would live inside a shithole as opposed to describing a calamity visited upon a populace trying to dig out. That's hellhole. The words are different. It's not that they're offensive because they're both in the naughty category. They're different because the president means one to be cutting and biting and really about people, even if they're not specifically about people. It's pretty clear. Everyone knows it. It's just that not everyone can say it. On the show today, I spiel about Aziz Ansari. Bad at dating, I think. I think, I hope, I have something to add to the conversation, something new. But first, the country of North Korea is a hellhole for most of the people who live there. And if the shit don't get fixed, they'll turn South Korea into a hellscape too. I guess it depends on how much of a shit our president gives. The guys from the Arms Control Wonk podcast are here, and I promise they will elevate my conversation. There is already a podcast called Pod Save the World, uh, and it's a good one. But if there is one pod that is actually going to save the world, it is the Arms Control Wonk podcast. The two mainstays of that joint are Dr. Jeffrey Lewis, who is the founding publisher of our armscontrolwonk.com and the director of, oh God, it's, it's, it's a really long title. But anyway, he's trying to save the world at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. And his, uh, his compadre in this affair on the Arms Control Wonk podcast Podcast is Aaron Stein, non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. Jeffrey, how are you? I am well. How are you? I'm good. And Aaron, how are you? Uh, not too bad. It's warmed up here on the East Coast. Uh, on your show, you give the best analysis that I know of on North Korea, great Iran analysis. But I want to talk right now, to start off, I want to talk about a different area, which is what's going on in Yemen and them lobbing rockets into the Rihad airport. I don't think a lot of Americans are paying attention to this. Do you want to just tell us in broad strokes what are the most important things to know about this situation? I think there are two really important things. One is it looks like these are Iranian missiles that are somehow showing up in Yemen and being fired at Saudi Arabia. And the second thing is the Saudis say that they are shooting them down with American-made Patriot missile defenses, but in fact, we think they're missing. They're missing, and that's why one of these uh, rockets landed so close to a civilian airport. Yeah, and in fact, a second one happened not that long ago, and we've been taking careful looks at all the social media information. And uh, yeah, it looks like the warheads are popping off and uh, they're landing awfully close to where they're being fired at. Fortunately, the missiles are sort of inaccurate, so they haven't gotten lucky yet. But, you know, sooner or later they will. 
So, so there's an official line, and Donald Trump, uh, he, he's one of the people behind this line. We're shooting them down with our patriots. But they also kind of trot out the wreckage of these missiles. They're not trying to hide that. And what you guys could do is add all the clues together and think about what a could's tail fin looks like. And when you add it all together, this has led you to conclude that the idea that they're shooting down these missiles is uh, in large part a lie. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Every time the missiles come down, you can see where the missile body lands because people take out their cell phones and they take pictures. And you can also see where the warhead lands. In one case, it's because it blew up uh, right outside the, the Terminal 5 of the airport and everybody ran to the window to look at it. And you can model that. You know, you can ask, is that consistent with it being shot down or does it look more like the warhead just came off, which it does, uh, and, and continued on its merry way. So, you know, it's a really interesting time we live in. It's not like it was in 1991 during the Gulf War when the Army was saying that they were consistently shooting these missiles down and it wasn't for uh, a couple years that we realized they weren't telling the truth. Uh, you can see almost in real time that they're fibbing a little. Yeah, and I, and I would say, just to jump in, that the big takeaway here is just how hard this is. Uh, and I think where the Saudis and ultimately where the president gets themselves into trouble is where they overpromise and they say that, that defenses are perfect. Defenses obviously aren't perfect. And this war has been going on for so long now and that these rebel forces, the Houthi rebel forces, are still able to lob rockets into Riyadh, the capital city of Saudi Arabia. Well, another aspect is, you know, President Trump, many conservatives so critical of Barack Obama talking about red lines and then not enforcing them. And that is a mainstay of deterrence to stick by your word, although I know you guys have thoughts on that. Very few people have noticed, but you pointed out that Saudi Arabia, really problematic ally, but a huge ally, one of the most important allies in that region, Iran, very, very big enemy of the United States. So Iran, through a proxy, is attacking an ally, and we're doing nothing about it. We're lying about it. My question is, does this actually redound to... If Barack Obama were saying it, for instance, conservatives would say, you know what you're doing? You're ruining the authority of the United States. You're decreasing the uh, deterrent capacity of the United States by not backing up your words with actions. Is a similar thing going on with Saudi Arabia? Oh, I, I wouldn't say we did nothing. Nikki Haley had a press conference, and she looked really cross at her press conference. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh to be fair to the Trump administration, I mean, they did at some point, not with these missiles, try and target ships uh, transiting through you know, the waterways around Yemen, and they did launch a cruise missile strike. So they are trying to do something, but I think what it shows is just how difficult it is to do anything in this case because you run the risk of actually involving yourself in a conflict that I don't think anybody really wants to get involved in. Yeah. There is a gap between the bellicosity of the language and the willingness to execute that language. And, th and that's good. I suppose it's good that we don't always back up Donald Trump's fiery rhetoric with the actions. But it does seem to me that there is at least some value in emphasizing the capacity of the United States, that part of the reason to have a big nuclear arsenal is not to have to use it. But you do have to emphasize that we could use it. And let's not, maybe you don't get into comparative button sizing, but it is good to remind our adversaries of the power that the United States has or for Saudi Arabia to do the same in their region of the world. Well, I just think you don't want to overdo it, you know, and I, one of the things that drives me crazy about the way the American political debate has evolved over the years is it's this kind of carnival of bellicosity, you know. Yeah. Uh, anytime we have a foreign policy problem, we're treated to Lindsey, Lindsey Graham on, on cable television talking about how we're going to bomb people. And I just think that we'd have a better, more intelligent foreign policy debate 
if there wasn't quite so much posturing. Unfortunately, I think at the moment it's the opposite, because almost all of the Trump administration officials I see on TV, uh, I think as Jake Tapper pointed out, are really performing for an audience of one. And so I, I suspect some of this, uh, some of this tough talk will continue. I want to ask you about the performing for an audience of one and when uh, the generals go on TV or take to the press and they talk about different ways that they could strike, say, at North Korea. Do you think that has the effect of an escape valve, letting the gas out a little bit? They say it once, the president gets his fix of, okay, uh, that's strong enough for me and so we don't have to actually resort to the use of force? Or do you think that that, I don't know, normalizes it? Do you think that that puts it on the table more than if the uh, advisors weren't essentially talking about military options as much as they do for their intended audience of one? I guess it can be both things. You know, I mean, I do think that everything we see says that the president is the war party inside the White House, uh, although he may be performing for his advisors just like they're performing for him. I can see the argument that it is an escape valve. But on the other hand, these are presidential utterances. These are things the president's saying. These are things that the president's staff are saying. And so, you know, the worry that I have is that the administration is making a really great case to the North Koreans for why they should never, ever, ever give up their nuclear weapons. Because we talk about the North Koreans like this when they have them. You know, imagine what we would do if they didn't. Are we also making a similar case of why the Iranians should get nuclear weapons? I think so. I mean... I certainly am someone who thought that the way that the United States approached Iraq and then especially Libya made really great cases for building nuclear weapons, since those are countries that had abandoned their nuclear programs and, and, and they were rewarded by, by being toppled and, and, and pretty gruesome deaths for both of their leaders. But boy, yeah, I mean, we keep talking about ripping up the Iran deal. And I, the thing I always tell people is, if you like a nuclear-armed North Korea, you are going to love walking away from the Iran deal. <laughs> is there even a theoretical structure for how to deal with a nuclear state other than live with it and uh, hope for deterrence? Well, I think that's the dilemma the Trump administration is, is, is dealing with right now. No, there really isn't something else that you can do. I mean, you could risk nuclear war, which no politician seems to really want to do. But then you have to accept the fact that you yourself are vulnerable, particularly now that North Korea has the capability to strike the United States. And the incentive then becomes to try and build your way out of the problem. And so you get, you know, try and get small-time fixes or big-time fixes like missile defenses, which takes us back to the Saudi Arabia argument, which are imperfect and don't solve your vulnerability problem. But they cost a lot of money. You know, these become a tool or a panacea to try and wish away this idea that we are vulnerable no matter how more technically advanced we are than anybody else and how backward we assume our enemies to actually to be. Yeah, we'll totally spend a bazillion dollars looking for a technical solution to a political problem. Exactly right. So I, I, I was reading in Foreign Policy, which is a good magazine, even though every once in a while they do something weird like have Mike Cernovich on their podcast. But they printed this uh, article, this argument by Edward Lutwak. Is that how he says his last yeah. name? Yeah, Edward Lutwak. And it, it, yeah, <laughs> it was titled, It's Time to Bomb North Korea. And on the, I think, the most glaring problem, I, you could skip to this paragraph, what about the fact that North Korea would certainly kill millions of South Koreans? Here's what he writes. 
It's true that North Korea could retaliate for any attack by using its conventional rocket artillery against South Korean capital of Seoul, where almost 20 million people live. U.S. military officers have cited the fear of a sea of fire to justify inaction. But this vulnerability should not paralyze U.S. policy for one simple reason. I'm waiting for it. Yes, tell me why. Because it's largely self-inflicted. And he goes on to say that the South Koreans could have bought an Iron Dome-type missile defense system or invested in better shelters. My jaw dropped. I even questioned whether foreign policy should be printing this, so I know he's a thinker on these issues, and he gets quoted. This seems like such a bad case that I hope a reasonable per- any reasonable person would read this and say, well, that actually shows why we can't bomb North Korea. But the question is, do you think the audience, the, that most important audience of one, whether he hears this case or a similar case, will think, oh my God, that's terrible reasoning. It shows why we can't attack or give North Korea a bloody nose. Yeah, you know, I, I met him when I used to work at CSIS in, in D.C., and I, I think that the purpose of this op-ed, it's not really a policy argument. There's this great book called Subculture, The Meaning of Style by Dick Hebdige, which is about, like, about how we represent ourselves in society, right? Like, what role style plays. And so, really, it answers questions, you know, like, well, why does, like, why does a punk rocker put a safety pin in his nose? And the, the point of of a lot of things people do from stylistic perspective is to be transgressive, right? Right. I think right. that's that's his brand. You know, six years ago he wrote exactly the same article about Iran, and you know we didn't take his advice and it was terrible because we had that nuclear war with Iran. Oh wait, this isn't really about a serious policy proposal. Just like a safety pin in a punk rocker's nose is not a serious policy proposal. It's about building his brand as someone who is transgressive and upsetting. And so, you know, since it's an act of style, I think the most appropriate thing to do is ignore it. Right. But Stephen Miller has essentially that brand in the field of immigration, and he's now a leading light on that issue. Not saying the actual person of Edward Lutwak gets hired by the administration, though I wouldn't put it out of the realm of possibility. I'm just saying, does that idea, can that idea actually penetrate the decision makers within the White House? I I think about the bloody nose, you know, you know, this idea that you could strike a target in North Korea after a provocative act and stay below the escalation threshold. I also think it's, it's, it's largely blustered because if it was truly a very serious and rigorously planned for policy option, we wouldn't hear too much about it. But here, that's true. But here's the thing. Uh, I might believe that, you might believe that, or believe or you know, belief slash hope that, maybe even key members of the administration and the president himself believes that there is another constituency, and that's the North Koreans. Are we sure the North Koreans are going to consistently take the bluster as bluster? No, we aren't, and that's the problem. I think they read it as weakness. There's actually a thing they've been saying in their propaganda, which the Chinese communists used to say quite a bit, and it turns out the Chinese communists believed it back in the day, and I think the North Koreans do too. It's that a frightened dog barks loudest. So one of the things I worry about from a a crisis standpoint is that because they engage in this constant rhetoric, they're actually waving a red flag at the North Koreans, uh, signaling that they, the North Koreans can probably get away with some things. And so we may actually see the North Koreans push this administration a lot more than they would have pushed either the Bush or the Obama administrations, which is not great news. Yeah, I call it speaking loudly but carrying a little stick. I mean, they have to know that the escalation options for the U.S. are untenable. But if you speak loudly, that really means that you're ruling out options as I go back. If you're seriously contemplating a military strike, you aren't leaking it to the Wall Street Journal, to all these various different outlets to look tough. You would keep that secret, I would have to think. 
And therefore, I would agree with Jeffrey, is that it just sort of makes you look like you're running around in circles for your own domestic audience rather than actually being specific about realistic policy options, even if it was a military strike. Obviously, we're America and we have the nukes, and so we should focus. It's right to focus on what Donald Trump's strategy is. But are there things the Koreans or even the Japanese or the Chinese are doing or not doing that is making that area of the world more dangerous? South Korea's missile program. I keep telling people this and no one cares. South Korea has a really, really advanced and capable missile program. And the whole point of this missile program is to kill Kim Jong-un before his fat finger pushes the button. That's disturbing because Kim Jong-un's plan is to push the button before they get a chance to kill him. And so that means both of them think they're going to go first, and one of them's wrong about that, and that freaks me out. So this might be unfair, but I always thought, uh, it's very hard to put numbers on this, but if you could, I thought, you know, during the presidency of George W. Bush, it was like a 0.5% chance that a nuclear weapon would be used, and during Barack Obama, 0.05% chance. And I don't know what the percentage is during Trump. I think it's exponentially larger than those numbers I cited, 5 or 10 or something like that. Is that fair? I mean, that's what I always say. I say it's some small number, like one in a hundred, one in a thousand, uh, one in 10,000. But then I say two things. One is it's like 10 times higher than it needs to be, right? If it's, if it's one in a thousand, it, it could be one in 10,000 if we made different choices. And then the other thing is, this is a risk we run day after day, week after week, year after year. And so even if the risk on any given day is really small, we're planning on doing this for the next three years with Trump and, and with nuclear weapons forever. In a way, Trump is, has been a benefit to our field because he's reignited questions about this idea that one man has unilateral launch authority because so many people are concerned that he's unfit for office. And while I think the probability is extremely low that nuclear weapons will be used, that authority isn't going to change. And the arsenal and all of the things that go into how to launch nuclear weapons will stick around long after Donald Trump leaves the White House. He is a one-man campaign for nuclear disarmament. <laughs> You've been listening to Jeffrey Lewis, the founding publisher of Arms Control Wonk and the director of the East Asia Nonproliferation Program at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, and Aaron Stein, non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. Their podcast is Arms Control Wonk. Thank you, gentlemen, so much. That was awesome. Thank you. And now the spiel. A few months ago, Aziz Ansari, stand-up comic TV star, went on a date with a young woman who did not like what transpired over the course of the evening. Grace, the name used to describe her in the online outlet Babe, accused Ansari in a text message sent after the date. I'll quote from the text message. This was in the Babe piece. Quote, you ignored clear nonverbal cues. You kept going with advances. A lot of commentators picked up on that to assert as I'll quote the title of an op-ed in the New York Times by Barry Weiss, Aziz Ansari is guilty of not being a mind reader. Weiss was on Morning Joe today to talk about her piece. We're, we're talking about women as if they, they ha like I wrote in the piece, that they have no agency at all. And I think that there's a scary sort of insidious um, line of reasoning that I'm seeing happening among feminists my age, which is to say, you know, we are everything. Everything is harassment and assault rather right. than saying 
no, we can stand up for ourselves. Weiss is a young female, kind of though not doctrinaire, conservative voice. Sonny Bunch, conservative male culture writer, former just guest, wrote in the Washington Post a piece headline this, Babes, Aziz Ansari piece, was a gift to anyone who wants to derail hashtag me too. Well, maybe not. Here's what I can add that is new. I hope it's new. A couple of years ago, affirmative consent became the buzz phrase and actually the law in New York and California on campuses there. And what affirmative consent means is yes means yes as the standard. In other words, what did not transpire between Grace and Aziz. At the time, there was some grumbling from the usual quarters. Oh, how ridiculous. Oh, we're criminalizing seduction. Or quite specifically, you know, you're making men have to read minds. But in most reasonable places where this was discussed, not just the scorching hot recesses of the woke net, but the, hey, let's be kind to each other and teach our sons to treat women with respect places, the reaction to yes means yes was, you know, maybe this will improve gender dynamics. Maybe this will lead to more gross happiness in the world. Aha. But now the man who didn't play by the ideals of yes means yes is a guy you know and a guy you like and a guy you probably think you know better than you really know because his comedy is confessional and because he plays a character named Disease. And oh, by the way, his accuser is not even using her real name. And the whole thing was mediated by a reporter who doesn't seem up to the challenge of reporting this very delicate story. So now the take we had about yes means yes, seeming pretty good. Now it seems unfair to Aziz. But is this because A, it is unfair, B, we know and like Aziz, or C, some of the dumb shit in that article, like the fact that she was only offered white, not red wine, confused basic facts. I maintain that if this were an article about an anonymous male, that no one would care and read it. But that's not my point. Let's say magically we all cared and read some article in Babe about an anonymous male doing what Aziz did. Would the reaction be that Aziz, sorry, well, anonymous male, would the reaction be that anonymous male got such a raw deal? Yes, I know we think he's getting a raw deal, or some of us do, because Aziz was named and shamed. But if we're just a referendum on who acted fine on that date and who acted unethically in the interaction, or less than fine, or caddish, or bad, or decreasing the gross happiness in the world, I think our reaction, meaning Barry Weiss's reaction, would be a bit more condemnatory of the male. She went to a guy's apartment, they started hooking up, they both got naked, she said no, he kept going, he performed oral sex on her, she performed oral sex on him, he kept asking for sex, she kept saying no. It's not that sympathetic a portrait of the man. And there wouldn't be a claim that the man was only guilty of not being a mind reader. I think that in the hierarchies of wrongs, Barry Weiss, Sonny Bunch, Mika Brzezinski, thinks more of a wrong was done to Aziz because the actual person, Aziz Ansari's reputation is going to suffer. But I think there is, even within the views of the people I named, an acknowledgement that there was maybe to them a lesser wrong and that the wrong wasn't 100% about a woman not standing up and saying no and putting her foot down. Yes, that would have diffused a bad situation. But also, yes, it was a bad situation. Elsewhere in that Morning Joe interview, Mika Brzezinski read from Barry Weiss's article. It is worth carefully studying Grace's story. Encoded in it are new yet deeply retrograde ideas about what constitutes consent and what constitutes sexual violence. 
I don't think it alleged anything about sexual violence per se. And also, it's not that retrograde an idea that what constitutes consent is both parties giving consent. That's not retrograde. That's progressive. Elsewhere, Weiss wrote, and this was also quoted by Mika Brzezinski. But the solution to these problems does not begin with women torching men for failing to understand their nonverbal cues. Okay but replace torching with teaching. If the male weren't an identifiable famous male whose reputation suffered, this wouldn't really be about the impossibility of mind reading. It wouldn't be about the retrograde idea of yes means yes as a consent standard. If we all read it and no one's reputation suffered, it might be something for men and women to think about. Hell, if it were better written and with some details changed, it'd be cat person. Now, if Aziz Ansari suffers greatly or if his career is over, Caitlin Flanagan in an overwrought piece in The Atlantic says he was assassinated. If that happens, that would be an injustice. And if Grace never thinks or considers what Barry Weiss and others are arguing, get some agency, girl. That's a missed opportunity for her. I bet, though, even without a New York Times op-ed to recommend verbalizing more the next time, Grace would or has verbalized more the next time. Aziz Ansari got embarrassed. That sucks for him. Grace had bad sex. She feels violated. That sucks. If she stays anonymous, I think she'll overcome this. As for Aziz, he's an extremely talented comedian who can now go out, think about what happened, and make some art about it. Aziz was, in this instance, on the subject of courtship, seduction, feminism, a master of none. But a lot of his stand-up and TV show of that title portrays him as this sympathetic main character trying to navigate thorny issues, but acting generally ethically and kindly along the way. He's the good guy hero of most of his stories. All right, that shtick has been derailed. It's not the Me Too movement that's been derailed. It's that persona. But upsetting the usual easy thing, that's kind of the definition of comedy. Aziz Ansari is funny. He's got a big stage. He could do something interesting or even profound with what happened. And I, and I think most of his fans, will be willing to listen. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname. He listens to the Portion Control Wonk podcast. Havesies on the mac and cheese. Those guys are experts. Just senior producer Mary Wilson, a big fan of the Janet Jackson Control podcast. Hasn't come out in a week. Yeah, I know. What have you done for me lately? Steve Lichtai, when not being executive producer of Slate Podcasts, listens to Regis Cast. I'm out of control. Oh, Reg. The Gist. We're huge fans the Video Game Controller podcast. Ironically, the episode about the six-button Sega Genesis that you can play Street Fighter on has a lull in the middle, but you can't fast-forward because to do so, you need the dial controller, and it wasn't even included. Oomperu depperu and thanks for listening.